Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And we're very excited to be joined by Sasha Sendorovich. Sasha is an Associate Professor of International Studies in Slavic Languages and Literatures at the University of Washington. And he's also the author of the recent book, How the Soviet Jew Was Made. So, Sasha, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So before we get into your book proper, which really begins after the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917, uh, I think it might be useful for listeners who might not know much about Russian Jewish history to understand what was the position of Jews in Russian society in the 19th and early 20th centuries? Where did they live? What were their rights? Um, Were they living in cities? Were they living in the proverbial shtetl? Could one make a generalization or not really? And then we could go into your book because because I think it's important to understand from where the Russian Jew came in order to understand how the Soviet Jew was made. Yeah, thanks for the question. I mean, first, uh, kind of a, a, an issue, kind of a, a point on terminology, right? So I talk about, in the book, I talk about the Soviet Jew, not Russian Jews. And I think actually talking about Russian Jews has become even more problematic since the things that we became aware of since the start of the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Uh, so first, kind of, what is a Russian Jew, right? This is kind of a, there's a famous Woody Allen, I think it's Love and Death. There's this, like, moment where this boy is talking to a priest, and the priest is showing him pictures, like, show me the pictures of a Jew. Here's a Russian Jew with horns, right? So the Russian is kind of a problem, because we're talking about the Russian Empire as a state, right, before 1917, uh, where Jews are, you know, one of many ethnic minorities, who do not, however, in their vast numbers, live in what we now understand to be Russia, right? So when you talk about Jews before the revolution in 1917, you're really talking about you know, imperial subjects in various ways, but they're living in Ukraine, right? They live in Belarus, in what is today Belarus, Ukraine, uh, and other places in what was known as the Pale of Settlement, uh, right? So the Pale of Jewish Settlement is uh, the stretch of territory in the western borderlands of the Russian Empire, uh, that uh, gets sort of put together at the end of the 18th century uh, at one of the several divisions of Poland, uh, Kingdom of Poland and Lithuania by uh, the Russian Empire, the Prussian Empire, uh, and uh, the kind of Russian Empire acquires most of its Jews at that time. Right, so these are Jews who live in parts of Poland, what is now Poland, Ukraine, Belarus, etc. And in the Pale of Settlement, which exists from the end of the 18th century until February of 1917, Jews have various face various restrictions uh, on residence. Right, so Jews, for the most part, cannot live in uh, big cities, with some exceptions, like Odessa. They stay within those territories in the Western borderlands, again with some exceptions. Merchants of a certain class could live outside the pale in, you know, imperial cities like St. Petersburg, but this was really a minority. So most Jews uh, in the Russian Empire live in the kind of what you said, the preferable shtetl, right? And shtetl being uh, a Yiddish word for a small town, which is really a mixed town. It's a town with a large 
you know, plurality of Jews, you know, 30, 40%, sometimes more, but there's also a significant non-Jewish population. And that would be, you know, ethnic Ukrainians or Belarusians or what have you, depending on where the shtetl is, right? So it's always a mixed town. And these uh, shtetls tend to be kind of market towns. So Jews have particular sort of places in in trade uh, and things like that. So that's the sort of situation before 1970. So this is a bit of a broad question, but I'll try to answer and then you could go in whatever direction you want. What is Jewish culture in the in the pale of settlement? And again, to understand how it shifted over time, are there features that define it? Are, are they connected to other world literatures? I know the Haskalah is happening. Does it hit Russia at this time? And just maybe give a sense of what it was to, to better understand this shift after 1917. Right. This is the prequel to my book, right? That the <laughs> other people have written uh, much better than I have. So, yeah, so the Haskalah, the Jewish Enlightenment, right, is, is very important. Uh, you know, it begins in Western Europe, right, and is sort of associated with Germany or what becomes Germany. Uh, but it makes its way east uh, and it has different features. It makes its way into the, into the Russian Empire. Kind of one significant moment when it comes to culture, right, because the question is about culture, is the rise of modern Yiddish literature uh, in the territories of the Russian Empire uh, as kind of a project that's connected to Haskalah, right? That's the, you know, Haskalah was about kind of, to, in, in the Russian Empire anyway, it was about kind of, you know, kind of refining Hebrew as a language of national expression. So there's a lot of the proponents of the Haskalah who begin writing uh, in these kind of higher languages, but then they make their way back to Yiddish, which is the language spoken by the Olive or the vast majority of Ashkenazi Jews who live in the Russian Empire, uh, and kind of by way of that begin writing what is known as, you know, modern Yiddish literature. So people like Shalom Babermovich, known by his pen name Mendele Mokers Forum, or Mendele the Book Peddler, and Shalom Aleichem, but also there are many other people who are kind of much less known to the general audience. So, you know, if you talk about culture, right, the, the starting, you know, especially kind of 1840s, 1850s, 1860s, that is the rise of the literary culture in Yiddish that's kind of modern and secular, uh, that's uh, really important. And it becomes kind of literature becomes in many ways the, the, the channel for kind of working out these ideas that are not only about culture, but also about politics. Thanks. That's really helpful, um, particularly because let's shift now to your book proper, which is this this might be a good place to start. And if not, tell me if I'm wrong. But what role does the Jew play in the Bolshevik imagination, broadly speaking? This might relate to nationalities. This might relate to the fact that many Soviet leaders, from my understanding, were themselves of Jewish origin. How does this all play into what happens in 1917? Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And again, others have written about this much more than I have, right? About this question of the Jew and the Bolshevik imagination or the Jew as a Bolshevik, right? So if we talk, kind of rewind back to that sort of prequel before the revolution, right? Uh, many Jews become interested in various streams of socialism, uh, you know, starting in the you know, tail end of the 19th century as, you know, a movement that could be associated with kind of seeing beyond ethnic differences, 
right, and guaranteeing something like civil rights to Jews who didn't have them, right, in the Russian Empire. So you have, you know, your Trotskys, etc., right, who are sort of children of shtetl tailors and whatnot, right, who are coming from these Yiddish-speaking families who uh, find their way to Russian language, first of all, as the language of, in which this kind of ideological streams get disseminated, right, but then also find their way into the broader revolutionary movements and its various manifestations, uh, uh, such that uh, there is a kind of disproportionate right, representation of Jews from these backgrounds uh, in, uh, among the Bolsheviks, but also the Mensheviks, right, and all kinds of other social democrats, I mean, they're all sorts of political parties uh, at the tail end of the Russian Empire. So that's how you end up with Jews once there is a revolution, once the Soviet state is established in positions of power, right? So Trotsky again, right, probably the most iconic figure, who is the commissar for, uh, who is basically the defense minister, right, uh, who founds the Russian army, uh, or, sorry, the Red Army, or the Russian army, the, the Soviet army, uh, and, and, and many other figures. So, so then the question about the kind of the image of that, right, is kind of a different side of it, right? So to the opponents of the Bolshevik revolution, so including some of the, you know, monarchist backlash, etc., but also even before the revolution itself, to the early revolution of 1905 and even before, right, the the, the various kind of pro-monarchist conservative forces begin associating Jews with Bolsheviks because they oppose Bolsheviks, right? So default to anti-Semitism as a way to oppose also the kind of the different revolutionary movements. So features of, you know, pogroms before the Russian Revolution, but already in the 20th century, 1905, 1906, right? Sometimes associate the kind of various uh, attempts at reform in the Russian Empire, kind of more progressive reform with Jews, uh, and and therefore kind of these get conflated. Right? And this continues uh, very much uh, through the Russian Revolution to the emergence of uh, what O. Hannah Brink, right, has written a book on the Judeo-Bolshevik, right, this kind of uh, stereotype, mythology, myth, Right of of how these two are really synonymous, uh, and uh, they you know still really potent, right? That still that hasn't really gone away. <laughs> you can still see traces of that in, in different places in the political discourse, uh, and so somebody like Trotsky becomes a poster child for this. That there's a famous sort of set of caricatures uh, where the you know Bolshevik state uh, gets kind of represented as this, you know, who knows Jew uh, with curly hair, right, Trotsky. So, uh, but, but I mean, that's just a very brief, right? There's, this is a whole separate, <laughs> yeah, yeah, very sure. extensive subject. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, uh, definitely. So the, the introduction to your book is dispersion of the pale. What do you mean by that? Because this is, I think, a, a guiding principle, metaphor right. of the book. So what do you mean right. when you say dispersion of the pale? Yeah, thanks for the question. So, uh, start with with a map, right? I mean, I'm not going to draw the map, obviously, because this is audio, but I'll try to describe it perfectly. (laughs) Describe it in words. I work with a map maker to help me kind of illustrate the main idea of my book in a map that's in the kind of front of the of the book. Uh, You're actually welcome to publish this with your notes if you're interested. I can I can give you that. Uh, And. 
what that map does uh, is it, it's sort of a map of space, but also time. And that's really hard to do in a map, uh, in a you know, two-dimensional map. So uh, the, if you look at the Western borderlands of the Russian Empire before 1917, right, with the scale of settlement where Jews are kind of restricted to living by, by various imperial laws, and you overlay it on the map of Europe, but also the Soviet Union after 1917 and 1922, the establishment of the Soviet Union, conclusion of various treaties after World War One, right, the rise of nation states. It becomes really interesting to see how the Peel of Settlement, though it's abolished in February of 1917, right, so Jews gain equal rights in February of 1917, they no longer have to live in the Pale. How that kind of Pale as a conceptual territory persists in terms of what people are thinking about and how they're moving. So when I talk about dispersion of the pale, not really from the pale, right? I really uh, think about how various people, but really I'm also writing about types, right? And when I look at these types through literary texts and films, how they get kind of dispersed or pick up, right, from the pale and they carry the pale with them. Uh, so they become off the pale when they're no longer in the pale necessarily. And and that doesn't matter for me whether they stay in the territories that are still associated with what had been the pale. Uh, so if somebody never moves anywhere uh, and they live in where they had lived in what used to be the pale, it's no longer the pale, it's the beginning of the Soviet Union. The place is changing, it's Sovietizing, it's modernizing in various ways according to kind of new, new ways of life. Uh, and the kind of the place and the people who live in it change as well. Or, right, people pick up uh, and they might go somewhere else. And I trace various journeys in the book about where people might go. So the book kind of uh, traces a couple of possibilities and that map is trying to represent them, right? So uh, one is kind of in, not, not moving anywhere, but ending up on the borderland between kind of the new independent Poland, right, that exists after 1918, in what becomes kind of parts of Ukraine that are contested through the, you know, what's known as the Russian Civil War. Uh, so you deal with people who never move, but now have to become smugglers and, you know, kind of deal with border crossing. That's one chapter. Another chapter is I look at uh, Minsk, which is, you know, in Belarus, but uh, becomes kind of a Soviet, growing Soviet metropolis. And I look at a, kind of how you can stay in place, but end up kind of a Soviet subject in various ways. I then look at this really kind of, we can talk more about this in depth, but I look at Bijan, the Jewish autonomous region in the Soviet Far East, which is a kind of fascinating and insane uh, bit of history in the way how kind of somebody, Jews are imagined as traveling there and becoming Soviet Jews in that place. And then I think about another chapter about Jews who had left the Russian Empire before the Russian Revolution uh, and had gone to America, but also Palestine, and find themselves back uh, in the 1930s in what had been the Russian Empire would become the Soviet Union. So I kind of think about that. And then uh, I think about sort of my last chapters about itineracy more broadly and kind of thinking about wandering and tricksters and being on the road uh, that sort of goes through that entire um, kind of confused geography. I mean, I, I love a good trickster. Why don't we actually go into a little bit more detail here? And why don't we we start with David Bergelson, who, if I recall correctly, had a very interesting career. He died in prison. Am, am I am I correct about that? Yes, he was a, a Yiddish writer. Yeah. 
so who was this guy? Uh, what it, the title of the, of the chapter is Haunted by Pogroms. Let's talk about pogroms, which is what many people probably think of when they think of Russian Jews, at least at first. Right. It's pogroms, right? But these are not the pogroms that people tend to think about when they think about Jews from the Russian Empire, right? So the popular imagination of pogroms and Jews from the Russian Empire is Fiddler in the Roof, right? And the the scene with slashed uh, pillows with feathers flying around, right? This kind of very... And, and it's very much uh, a part of the Jewish imagination. I was looking at a baby oh, yeah. book the other day, and it, it's like an, a, a Jewish baby book, A through Z, and F is for Fiddler on the Roof. So this is the, uh, the very important in sort of the American imaginary of where they came from, which also gets into very interesting questions, just given that this is an international affairs podcast sometimes about Ukraine mm-hmm. and the role of that. Oh, so yeah. maybe we could, we could end a little bit with that. But, but let's talk about Bergelson. So who was he? Sure. And what pogroms are you talking about? Right. So David Bergelson or David Bergelson, right, if you kind of uh, anglicize it, uh, was uh, uh, a Yiddish writer who was born in the 1880s uh, in Ukraine. Uh, and he was following, right, a whole generation of writers who were kind of seen as the kind of first generation of modern Yiddish literature. Uh, so he, you know, he's coming after Shalom Aleichem, he's coming after Mendele. Uh, and he really is kind of a modernist in his intentions. Uh, and he, you know, is trying, he is, you know, people think of him as kind of the Yiddish Chekhov or the Yiddish, you know, Hamsun, right, who is sort of interested in, you know, the decline of the shtetl bourgeoisie, right? He's sort of writing these novels about kind of the social malaise. So he becomes, he's really well known by the end of the 19-teens for his uh, novels that he published. And then he, in in the 1920s, he finds himself, you know, displaced kind of a few times over, right? First from Ukraine around 1918, 1919, which becomes a site of, you know, these really violent pogroms. Jeffrey Weidlinger has written a really important book about this a couple of years ago. So these are, you know, the kind of accounts vary, right? People have different estimates, but the kind of estimates are maybe as many as 100,000 Jews die uh, in three, four years in what are basically kind of a series of military conflicts over the territory of Ukraine. Uh, it's various powers, change hands, etc. So Bergelson ends up leaving. He settles in Moscow for a little bit, but then he moves on to Berlin. Uh, so in 1921, he's in Berlin. He stays in Berlin until as long as you can stay in Berlin, which is 1934 in his case. Uh, in 1926, he kind of famously proclaims that, you know, the Soviet Union is the, pl- is the place for Yiddish literature uh, and kind of aligns himself uh, in some ways politically, right, with the, with, the, with the Soviet Union, but doesn't really hurry to return there, right? So it takes him another eight years to come back. Uh, and then when he comes back, you know, he writes all kinds of things about various, you know, ideological projects. He writes a memoir uh, that's really important. And he's really active during the Second World War. So this is beyond the, the scope of my book, but I'm kind of going to finish out his biography first. So he becomes very... He's an important figure in the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee, uh, which the Soviet Union finds in 19, founds in 1941 as a way to kind of basically fundraising effort <laughs> for uh, 
for the Soviet military um, effort uh, among kind of Jews in the West, right? So they kind of become uh, the face of the Soviet regime abroad uh, in many cases, but also write, you know, kind of important articles internally uh, about the Holocaust, right? Bergelson kind of observes things. He begins to write about that we come to know as the Holocaust. And then he and his other uh, colleagues in the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee get arrested in 1949, so in late Stalin's period, when Stalin becomes, you know, very suspicious of people with any kind of foreign connection, as all of these people did have, uh, and then they're on trial, uh, and he and other people are executed in August of 1952. Uh, so Bergelson is one of five writers who are killed, five Yiddish writers, but they're also, you know, more than half of the people killed by the not writers. Uh, but it's kind of, again, another date in... Jewish cultural imagination as something as the Night of the Murdered Poets, uh, which is for various reasons a misnomer, but he gets sort of associated with that. So we know, people know more about Bergelson because of his end. So in this chapter, I try to write about this novel, or I, I write about this novel, I wrote about this novel that he wrote after or around the time where he proclaimed this allegiance to the Soviet Union. So he begins to write it in 1925. He serializes it for a bunch of years. It's called Judgment in the translation that I did together with Harry Morav. Uh, it's a somewhat more complex style in Yiddish. And this novel has an interesting history that I go into in the chapter as well, because it becomes, it gets dismissed later by critics in the West, right? So Cold War era Yiddishists people who can read it as basically political propaganda, right? They think, okay, this is bad Bergelson. This is after he'd written his great novels. This is when he's a, you know, Soviet proselytizer, basically. Not worth reading. But it turns out that the novel is really very much worth reading because what was really crucial for me is how writing in Berlin in the mid-1920s, Berlin is a city that becomes a refuge for many emigres from the former Russian Empire, including many Jews who flee from the pogroms. Berlin becomes an important site where the memory of pogroms begins to get collected, right? So there are several archival projects, there are publications of testimonies uh, in various languages. Uh, so he is living among refugees, and he is one of them. Uh, and he knows how that story ends, right? He knows how the story of pogroms in Ukraine ends, because this is all in the mid-1920s. But this novel, uh, he decides to set before the end is known. Uh, so this is a really interesting text that is set in 1920, set on the border between what has become Poland and what kind of Bolsheviks try to claim as Soviet Ukraine, or the future Soviet Ukraine, right, Bolshevik Ukraine, uh, with various levels of success and failure. Uh, and the protagonist, the main protagonist of this novel is the border guard, who is non-Jewish, who is the member of the Chikau, the Bolshevik secret police, which at this point in history is concerned with borders and how to kind of police borders. Uh, and they're right next to this little shtetl where the Jews had been turned into smugglers, of goods, but also of politics. Uh, there's sort of interesting convergence between the smuggling of people and the smuggling of political ideologies. And to me, so the, it, the novel was read by, you know, various Cold War critics uh, as somehow celebrating this 
you know, non-Jewish Czechist, this non-Jewish Bolshevik. But actually, this Czechist is ill. Uh, he has separating wounds on his neck. So I read Who this as a gothic days? novel. <laughs> right. I read it as we a all, We all love novel. a good separating wound. I mean, frankly. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I read it as a gothic text uh, that comes at a time when there's already a lot of gothic-like texts about the Bolshevik secret police in Russian, which Bergelson read. And I think about it as a story that he tells about these shtetl Jews who don't know which way the wind is going to blow and about their kind of, you know, doubts about casting their lot with the Bolsheviks. Uh, because the Bolsheviks are there supposedly to protect them, which was true in many ways, right? The Bolsheviks did prevent various pogroms from continuing to happen. They perpetrated some on their own, right? But there are many that they stopped and were seen for the most part as a kind of a saving force. But here is this Czechist who is maybe not going to make it because he's so ill and, you know, so, like, unsteady. Uh, so I think Bergelson is trying to kind of recreate this air of doubt about which way things will end, uh, even though he writes at the time when the end is already known, right? He knows that the Bolsheviks will stay. So that, to me, is really interesting, right? Trying to recreate this moment of, uncertainty. So so then how does that relate to your larger, if we're thinking this is a book about how the Soviet Jew is made, what does this yeah. contribute to that larger yeah. narrative? Yeah, thanks for steering me back to the, I get kind of very excited talking about various, I'm a, so I'm a literary scholar, right, who gets really caught up in my texts. Uh, how does it relate? Uh, so if you think about my book uh, as a kind of conceptual map uh, of different markers of what a Soviet Jew is, right? One of these markers is the trauma of the pogroms of the civil war, right? So the haunting by the pogroms, the surviving pogroms, right? Being displaced by a pogroms. Uh, numerically, it's a really interesting kind of phenomenon. Other people have written about this more. So if you think about 100,000 victims, right? And mostly Ukraine, Right. There are also many survivors of those families that are murdered who, you know, kind of continue to exist with this trauma. They're victims of rape. Right. So that goes on for some time. So there's a whole generation or maybe even more uh, of people who end up then in the Soviet Union, right, the Soviet Jews who bear this trauma that sort of comes up in different ways or doesn't, right, gets really suppressed in later periods. So it's important to kind of name it. Hello, Prestige Heads. Danny here to tell you about this great product that I've actually been using for the past several months, and that's Aura Digital Frames. Now, many of us today are forced to move around the country to go where our lives take us, and that's true for me too. This has made it unsurprisingly somewhat difficult to stay in touch with family members, but Aura Digital Frames has really come to the rescue, especially since I had a baby. I'm able to send my parents and other family members constant updates about my kid's life, which of course allows them to feel more closely connected to both me and more important for them, more closely connected to him. And for those worried about the fact that Aura Digital Frames is a tech adjacent gift, don't worry because it's so easy to start using. I can upload photos right from my phone in just a click. 
It'll even pair photos together for me. And happily, there's no memory cards, there's no USBs, nothing like that is required. See why Aura was named the number one digital frame by Wirecutter, the strategist, and Wired. So with Aura, give the perfect gift this holiday. Visit AuraFrames.com today and get $30 off their best-selling frames with the code PRESTIGE. These frames sell out quickly, though, so get yours before they're gone. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com with the promo code PRESTIGE. And as always, terms and conditions apply. Uh, thanks, Sasha, for that. So you just said the pogrom is one of the attributes. What are some of the other attributes that play a significant part in the story you're telling here? So these are the other four chapters, and I'll be kind of much quicker here. So I think about in the second chapter, I think about uh, you know Jews who stay in place, who live in you know this proverbial shtetl, which becomes incorporated in a part of a kind of growing Soviet metropolis. And I'm really interested in how various aspects of Soviet modernity that manifest in things like electrification uh, or the creation of urban rail networks uh, make them connected into the Soviet polity uh, in ways that make them question who they are. Uh, so the kind of key episode for me about uh, my second chapter, which is based about a, based around the novel by Moshe Kulbach called Zelminyaner, and Zelminyaner are the family, uh, this kind of large family, uh, that, that live uh, on the outskirts of Minsk, is this moment where they go to the movies and they see what I reconstruct through the references in the novel and looking at kind of the actual history of what was shown in Minsk at the time is Nanook of the North, right? The Robert Flaherty's uh, non-documentary, right? What was known as a documentary but really isn't uh, about the Inuit beyond the Arctic Circle. Uh, and that film from 1922 had been thought of by American, you know, Western anthropologists as kind of indulging in salvage ethnography, right? Trying to capture as though it was still kind of living. Uh, Sasha, can I actually interrupt very quickly? Because this seems to be a theme, which the West misunderstanding. So uh, (laughs) what is going on? Just very quick. To me, that's a very interesting thing. Why have have we had such total misunderstandings of what was actually going on? Is it as simple as this was the Cold War and post-Cold War period and that was that? Or what do you think explains that? Because I think that probably is a, is a, is a trend in Western analysis of the Russian Empire and Soviet Union and successor states. I mean, it's, it's a great question, right? Let's, we'll come back to the attributes later, but I think that's really kind of the key. So I would say this is not what was the motivating question for writing this book. But I think in many ways, it's also hard to overlook it. Uh, and I try to gesture toward it in various ways, right? So I think what I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to go back to the beginning, right, of the Soviet period and work very slowly. My book ends in the late 1930s to try to kind of reconstruct a more nuanced understanding of what Soviet Jews were or may have been because I read about this kind of conceptual figure because... So much of what is known in the West about the Soviet Jews is really overshadowed by the Cold War, right? And I think within a lot of people's living memories and experience, especially, right, as the Soviet Jewry movement of the late 60s, 70s, and 80s, uh, you know, with shout out to uh, both of your and my employer, you know, Danny, the Jackson School of International Studies, right? Senator Jackson of Washington, 
it is one of the key figures in uh, this kind of hawkish Democrat, uh, one of the key figures in the Soviet Jewry movement in the West, right? And the Soviet Jewry movement, uh, which fights for the rights of Jews to immigrate from the Soviet Union, is understanding Jews as people who'd been stripped of their history, people who've been completely deracinated uh, by the Bolsheviks and the Bolshevik Revolution, people who lost any connection to their real heritage, right? All of this in quotation marks, air quotes. Uh, and in many cases, that is true, but it is not true in details. Uh, and that image becomes really useful and usable both for successfully fighting for these people to be able to live, right? But also to motivate public opinion in the West, right? That we're saving Jews so they can be Jews who can practice Judaism and be good Zionists and whatever, uh, right? Uh, what I'm trying to do in the book is to try to get to the place in history before that is the distorting lens, right? Before the Cold War. So I really try, what I try in every chapter is to reconstruct the moment in which, you know, moment somewhere between 1917 and 1938, 1939, uh, where this or that attribute of Soviet Jewishness comes to be before we get into the Cold War discourse, right? In some cases, in some of these chapters, I have to kind of point to how this later gets distorted by Cold War discourses. Uh, but the book is primarily not about that, right? Primarily, it's really about trying to kind of reconstruct this cultural historical moment. Uh, so I, I don't know if that sort of makes uh, makes sense as an answer, right? So that's... Uh, so the, right, the second attribute is this kind of various engagement with Soviet modernization projects uh, and, and the way in which, you know, Jewish culture, Jewish life is changing under the influence of those attributes in a way that make kind of interesting kind of parallels with an awareness of something like salvage ethnography. Right? So I try to kind of think about very specific references to actual ethnographic projects about Jews in the Soviet Union. In my third chapter, I think about this really bizarre place uh, called the called Berebidjan, uh, which later gets called the Jewish Autonomous Region, uh, a project uh, of Stalinism. It's established in 1928, uh, and it gets kind of upgraded to the autonomous region status in 1934 uh, as a place that is imagined by the regime as a homeland for Jews in the Soviet Union. Uh, in the Far East, on the border with Manchuria. <laughs> uh, so, uh, and I, you know, get into various sort of reasons for that. Uh, and the main one for me that's really interesting is the discrepancy between imagining the kind of state-level imagining of Jews as homed in that region and the kind of very weird persistence in some of the texts written about this place uh, that tend to thematize the inability of Jews to arrive there. Uh, so kind of the main feature for me becomes Jew, a Soviet Jew is marked by non-arrival in the place that the Soviet regime associates as kind of marquee for uh, where Soviet Jews should exist. So I have all these kind of weird literary texts where people wander around and they're writing that kind of they're on assignment to write about Jews, but they do everything they possibly can to write about something else. Uh, so I've got asked like a really interesting questions at some of the book talks that I've given about this, and I haven't written about this in the book, but I, it's worth thinking about this as, you know, a settler colonial project, 
uh, one of many, right, of Russian Empire, but also the Soviet Union, uh, of trying to move various populations in kind of places where they hadn't lived before, right? So this is a territory that's uh, ceded by what later becomes China in the in the 1850s, in in kind of very uh, unfavorable terms or very unfavorable terms. Uh, and Russian Empire controls it, uh, but barely, right? So in the 1850s, they move a population of Cossacks to this place, which is populated by ethnic Koreans, right? Some ethnic Chinese. Uh, yeah, Derek? Well, so Sasha, I, I, I mean, you're probably headed to here anyway, but m- my question about this particular part of the book, which I found very interesting and, and was not really all that aware of the history, um, to what extent is the the decision to create this far eastern Jewish homeland fueled by the you know questions about the Soviet Jewish population and what would be best you know how how to best kind of uh, deal with them and and how much of it is fueled by here's this piece of land out in the far east that we we would like to develop and you know there's nothing out there right now and and we so how how was that kind of mix. Uh, oriented, I guess. I mean, I think it's more the latter than the former. Plus, right, this is the moment is the 1920s, 1930s. Also, ideologically, this is a a kind of a crooked mirror image of, or maybe not so crooked, uh, of the Zionist settlement in Palestine, right? So some of the kind of animating discourse, in addition to what you're saying, Derek, is that you know, this is a land of swamps that need to be drained, right? There's this like weird insistence in the writing about how it's great for beekeeping, which makes me think, of course, of, you know, milk and honey. And, you know, the language of this land is going to be Yiddish, right? Which is understood by the Soviet kind of regime as the language of the Jewish, Ashkenazi Jewish, obviously, working class, as opposed to Hebrew, right? The kind of language of national revival by Zionists in Palestine. Uh, as, you know, understood as a, you know, as a, you know, colonial language, et cetera, right? So uh, kind of a British empire, colonialism, et cetera, right? So it's sort of trying to think in very parallel terms and you can find, you know, kind of borrowings uh, discursively, but also in terms of representation of various posters and things like that. Uh, so that's kind of there too. And as far as the settlement, right, this piece of land that we have and, you know, nothing's happening there. Yeah, I mean, what I'm interested in this chapter, I try to write about some of the Jewish journalists who go in there and they become fascinated by these Cossacks who had been there for about 70 years at that point, who were themselves forcibly moved there in the 1850s to populate the, the underpopulated regions so it could be better kind of held by the Russian Empire. And these writers become interested in how they become completely, you know, kind of severed from their identities and they're lazy and they don't know how to do anything and they're not self-sufficient, right? So kind of by way of writing about them as, you know, kind of settlers of a previous generation, they're like looking in the mirror and like, okay, this is what's going to happen to Jews as well. So I don't think there was an issue, like this was never successful in terms of numbers, right? There were never... Not enough Jews, nothing close to dealing with any kind of overpopulation or anything like that ever came close to moving to Birbidjan. We're talking about maybe, I mean, I'm not the best on numbers, 10,000 maybe at most, right? It's in the thousands, right? But it's not even tens of thousands, right? So, 
a very, very small minority, right? So it's really, uh, you know, people go there, they check it out, they say it's great, but then they don't settle. Bergel Silicon, we mentioned earlier, when he, in the 30s, he was offered an apartment in Turbidjan. I guess I'm not saying I'm going to stay in Moscow, right? So it's like that, right? So it's really this, it's importance it is over-exaggerated, right, in, in, in its prominence, but it's a really important ideological place because of how much it's talked about. So, Sasha, uh, as we wind up here, maybe we could talk a little bit about, do you think what you, you wrote, it's obviously a literary cultural analysis, which should be taken on its own terms, but do you see any themes related to what's going on in Ukraine today, or at least how American Jews approach Ukraine that you'd like to talk about as we wind up here? So the book went into production around January, February of 2022, right? So I asked my editor whether I could still write a preface of some kind after the full-scale invasion began, and, you know, I couldn't. Uh, so this is all kind of thinking about what I would have written, I guess. Uh, so in some ways, I think what I try to do is, it's really important for me to talk about Soviet Jews and not Russian Jews. So I think that's one of the ways it's really crucial for, and that is in the book before the full-scale invasion. That's somehow just I, something that I realized, right? I don't talk about Russian Jews. That's really important uh, because it preserves the possibility of more nuances about thinking about regional differences by people who could be doing other studies who don't always have to think about Russian Jews as a category because Russian Jews as a category really doesn't exist, I don't think. Right? There's no such thing as a Russian Jew. There's a Russian-speaking Jew, maybe, right? And that is its own has its own history of colonialism and linguistic colonialism. Uh, but uh, Soviet Jews is really the key for me. And then another maybe major moment is that I found it really uncanny, especially with kind of chapter about Bergelson, but also others, that something like maybe 60 or 70% of the book actually deals with Ukraine. The Jews from Ukraine, uh, who think about Ukraine, it's really about the place. And I'm not a Ukrainianist at all, right, by training, but it's been really interesting to me to see how some of my Ukrainian colleagues reacted to the book positively, right? And sort of took it as an important read for the work that they're doing uh, in Ukrainian studies, Ukrainian history, to try to think about kind of this interaction with the Soviet state, right? But from those territories. So that's kind of something that I think hope, hopefully offers some kind of a you know, not a corrective, but a nuance, right, to some of the, let's say, American Jewish readers, for example, right, of this book who might have certain conceptions about, right, that territory uh, and maybe could, could use uh, kind of a little bit more uh, nuance in how they think about the present. Sasha Senderovich, thank you so much for joining us. Everyone check out the book, How the Soviet Jew Was Made. It's really excellent literary and film analysis. And uh, Sasha, we hope to have you back soon. Thank you so much. Thank you, Danny. Thank you, Derek.